Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Piyush Agarwal, who is Professor of Surgery and Neurology and Director of the Bladder Cancer Program at the University of Chicago. His clinical and laboratory research focuses on bladder cancer, the urinary microbiome, molecular targeted therapy, and immunotherapy. Welcome, Piyush. Thank you, Gil. Thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, thanks for doing this. So we have a number of different uh, topics um, we would like to get into. I want to start with, uh, a- you said that aging of the population with greater need for urologists, strain on the healthcare system as greater need for surgeries in older population, leading to more intervention and more hospitalization. And urology is a specialty that relies on new technology. Um, clearly, um, Except for a few countries, every country is aging, <laughs> mm-hmm. unfortunately. And uh, along with age, uh, I come. Uh, I guess uh, urology-related issues uh, happen, and and there is a significant surgical uh, intervention there too, right? So, so from a U.S. perspective, um, so what is happening? Uh, do we have enough specialists in this area, or are we lacking specialists? You know, so uh, Gil, when I applied to urology, there were only about a little bit over 200 spots um, in the country each year. And the match rate my year was about 30 to 40%. So, you know, you had basically, you know, 600 some people apply and only about 200 or so match. So it was quite competitive. And the spots have now increased. There's about a little bit over 400 some spots. And the match rate for last year was 83%. So despite the the spots going up um, significantly, the the applications did not go up proportionately. And the problem is, is that the average urologist is in their 40s and 50s right now, the average practicing urologist. So 
by 2035, most of these urologists will start entering retirement. And as the population continues to age, along with the urologists aging themselves, and without the applications going up significantly, um, and the spots, you know, we haven't increased the spots that dramatically, you know, there's a fear that we will get in a situation where there may not be enough urologists to serve the United States. Um, and, um, you know, there's some other factors that go into it, that as well. Um, most urologists are in urban areas and most of the needs of the patients are in the rural areas. So the average patient has to drive more than 30 minutes to see a urologist. Um, there isn't one just around the corner. So if you live in, you know, average America, if you live kind of in, um, you know, rural America, and those are the patients that really have a need for urologic services. So, um, so it's, 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 it's a problem that, you know, I worry about, you know, from a policy perspective, even though I, you know, focus in a small area, but I, I worry about um, my specialty. And, you know, I wonder if it's a problem in urology, whether this is a problem in other uh, medical specialties as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So I, I wonder strategically, um, we know that everybody's aging. So there are certain disease areas that's going to have a higher demand, right? Right. You can think about neurology, you can maybe think about diabetology uh, and urology. Um, but are we really sort of strategically thinking about this in terms of capacity and demand uh, for, for these specialties? I don't think we are, to be honest with you. I think basically, you know, everybody is focused on the here and now. And, you know, our governing body, the American um, Urologic Association, um, has basically, you know, they're in tight control of these spots for urologists. And it, in my mind, has not expanded to the degree that it should. Now, part of that is because it's a competitive specialty. Um, overall, it pays pretty well. And most urologists are very busy and active. And one of the fears is if you, if you open the floodgates, you may not enjoy the prosperity and the the volume that we you currently enjoy so that is uh, that that is a situation and i think in primary care they've acknowledged that there's a to serve the rural community so there are incentives to practice in a rural environment you know pay back your student loans and Programs, you know, certain residencies so that you will, because later you're going to, you know, provide, you know, state-of-the-art care in a rural environment. But, you know, urologists as specialists, we haven't done that. We've basically, we've increased the, spite, the spots slightly, but we have not pressured people to go work in rural environments. We've not pressured people to work in, um, you know, parts of urology, uh, for example, infertility, is really you don't deal with older patients, you deal with young patients trying to have children. Um, we have not um, pressured people to go into, you know, geriatric urology, which is not even a subspecialty, but it should be. But we've not pressured people to go into those, those typical problems of urinary incontinence or 
an enlarged prostate or recurrent urinary infections um, or neurogenic bladder where people cannot void properly, um, which typically are problems that happen in older, older patients. We have not pressured our trainees to go into that area of urology. And, and frankly, because there's been no incentive to do that. Um, you can't generate you know, money doing those procedures as much as you can by removing prostates from people who have prostate cancer. So I just think our specialty, our, our, our organization and our specialty is not preparing for the future when you know, there's gonna be a great demand and very few urologists who are, who are kind of providing that care and, and are mostly centered in urban environments. Hmm. What's the situation worldwide? Is this a U.S. phenomenon, or do we do we have sufficient, you know, sort of demand capacity balance elsewhere? Yeah. So worldwide, um, there te- there seems to be, um, you know, a good number of urologists um, in other countries, and part of that I think is because of the training. So in a lot of other countries, what happens is everybody sort of gets a surgical training. Um, and then after a surgical training, during their surgical training, they actually are rotating on the different subspecialties such as neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, and urology. I mean, in India, this is very common, for example. Um, and then what will end up happening is then they have to pick, uh, pick a subspecialty in the middle of their surgical training. So, so the urologists get a very you could argue that some of their initial training may not be focused to urology, but they develop a skill set of just doing surgery. And um, I would argue that a lot of the um, international urologists are very skilled technically because they have been taught to be surgeons before being urologists. Whereas in the US, a lot of the programs used to do two years of surgical training before going on to do urology-specific training. And now many of the programs have limited that surgical training to about three to four months of surgical training, and everything else is urologic training. Now, the trainees are learning how to do surgery when they're in urology, but it's very urology-specific surgery. Hmm. And, for example, when I was a trainee, I did two years of general surgery. I did transplant surgery. I did vascular surgery. And those techniques you know, have stayed with me in my urology training and they've helped me become a better surgeon urologically because I remember the, you know, the concepts and the techniques. And and not to say that our current trainees are not well trained, but I think, um, you know, the problem is, is that um, there's no exposure to urology unless you know about it upfront. Whereas in the other countries, somebody can just go into surgery and have an equal chance of being a neurosurgeon or a urologist because they're going to be exposed to everything. But here in the U.S., unless you know when you're a third-year medical student that you want to do urology, it's very hard to kind of um, go into it unless you know. And honestly, as a medical student, you don't get a lot of exposure. Hmm. That's really interesting. So it's sort of an educational uh, system design question. Um, you know, should there be sort of foundational areas like surgery, diagnostics, and so on, that is sort of your early part of your education, 
and then you you specialize in you know uh, specific areas. So those foundational skills then gives you a lot of breadth in terms of thinking about the problem, right? And, and it seems like that is what's happening outside the U.S., but that's not happening in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, for example, so the first exposure um, to urology is usually on a surgery rotation. And um, so usually in the third year of medical school, medical students have to do rotations on different services. And since urology is a subspecialty of surgery, um, what most programs will do, so for example, here at the University of Chicago, where I'm at, you know, the uh, medical students will do six weeks of surgery rotation, and then they'll spend another four to six weeks doing electives, and they're not automatically assigned to do urology. So if they're not assigned to do urology, they may never know about the specialty unless they take the effort to go back later and do a rotation in urology. Um, there's also um, there's also differences in exposure to urology based on where you're at. So, for example, I went to Cornell Medical School, which has one of the top urology departments in the country. So, everybody gets exposed to urology because it's such a famous department. But you may end up going to a medical school um, in Pittsburgh or in Philadelphia that doesn't have a big urology department. Um, and if you go to one of these smaller hospitals in Philadelphia, is a good example. There's, you know, the small training program called Allegheny General, which has a relatively young, small urology program. And those students, unless they go out of their way to go rotate at Temple or Fox Chase or University of Pennsylvania um, or Jefferson, they're not going to get a good urology experience. And those medical schools are going to graduate fewer trainees that go into urology. So a lot of it is, you know, whether the existing medical school has a urology program, whether the program is held in high esteem, and whether that department interacts with students, and whether rotations are required in urology during their surgery rotations. And there's a lot of variability across medical schools, um, and that's the problem. It's really being at the right place at the right time. I went to Cornell, I was exposed to it, um, and I loved it. But if I went to another medical school, it's possible I would have never been exposed to it and possible I never would have gone into urology. So I want to ask you a basic question, Piyush. So how is uh, urology specialization related to OBGYN specialization, or is it? Yeah, very interesting. So, you know, OBGYN, a long time ago, kind of became their own residency. So if I remember correctly, I think historically they also did this um, training where they did surgery first, like general surgery, rotated as general surgery residents, and then later went into OBGYN. And then, um, you know, throughout my training, um, it's always been its own residency at every institution I've ever been at. And I would say it's got its pros and it's got its cons. Um, I think the cons are that, again, you only learn site-specific surgery. So, for example, if you are operating to remove a uterus for uterine cancer and you get a, you know, a bad injury to a blood vessel, you may only know how to 
kind of repair that blood vessel or manage that blood vessel related to the uterus. But the inferior vena cava, which is not, you know, it's not too far away, is a big vessel. And if you were to injure that, that could be very difficult to manage. Um, and if you don't have good training, you could potentially get into a really difficult situation. So, you know, I have my personal opinion, which is I think anybody who does surgery in the abdomen should um, rotate through general surgery. But you could argue that OBGYN has been doing it for years without that and has done a fine job training its trainees. Um, you know, we in urology do rotate through general surgery, but as I mentioned, many programs now have limited that exposure. So we are gonna see how urology does because we are now adopting that model of OBGYN where we're just gonna train our surgeons within our own discipline. But but I, I trained with general surgery and I really value that training and I think I'm a, a better surgeon as a result. But what is probably gonna happen is those, as you know, OBGYN, you can be, just like urology, you can be very office-based and you can not be in the operating room as much, or you can be in the operating room all the time doing bigger surgeries. And I think what will happen is those residents in both specialties who want to be in the operating room and do complex surgeries are going to go on and do fellowships afterwards for that additional training. And I think that those that are going to be office-based are going to realize that their skill set is probably not in the operating room and they're going to take on the less challenging surgical cases and do more office-based practice, which is very feasible in both specialties. You touched on this uh, before, sort of the disparity between urban and rural care. And um, in specialties, I would imagine, like urology and others, where there is a demand capacity problem, um, I, guess, I guess the rural areas are even worse affected, right? Like you mentioned, uh, people have to travel 30 miles to go see a specialist. So from a policy perspective, what do you, what do you think is the solution for something like this? Yeah, this is a tough, it's a tough, tough situation. I can tell you that um, we at the University of Chicago, for example, we see a lot of patients from herbal, uh, from rural areas in Northwest Indiana because Northwest Indiana is in between Indianapolis and Chicago. And unfortunately, there's really no major medical center there. So when they get afflicted with bad disease, um, they, they, they have to drive. And um, a lot of the urologists available in these areas are, are older. Um, they're, they're general urologists, they're not specialized. So when patients need more advanced care, they, those patients get referred either to Indianapolis or to Chicago. Um, and we're the beneficiaries of that because we are the nearest academic center to Northwest Indiana. Um, and I think Right now, the current solution, solution is referral to tertiary centers. And for example, what I do is a partnership with the rural urologist. So I basically, you know, patients will get sent to me, they'll get all of their imaging, all of their workup for a complex cancer locally. And then they will come to me for one visit to review their images, talk to them about surgery. 
And the next time I see them and I do them their surgery, and after that, then all of their follow-up is done locally by their rural urologist who communicates with me. And if anything pops up, then they come back to me. So we sort of share the care of the patient. Um, and I have a relationship as a tertiary urologist with, with you know, several general urologists. Um, and that's, I think, the current solution. Now, I don't know if that's sustainable. Um, I think that, you know, if I were designing policy, I would want to incentivize my, you know, urologists to go out to the rural areas. Now, um, the problem is, is we have a lot of technology in urology. We use the uh, robotic surgery very often, and you're not going to be able, a rural hospital is not going to be able to buy that for a urologist. So, um, so a lot of the urologists coming out of training, they either want to be very technologically savvy and do very complex cases. And unfortunately, right now, the only place to do that is in a major academic center. Um, but there have to be some incentives to go work in a rural environment, uh, uh, possibly salary, possibly loan repayment. Uh, you know, quality of life um, is better in a rural environment. So that's a potential way to lure people to those environments. Um, and a current solution is uh, actually locum tenens. So um, urology is becoming a very um, popular area where urologists who are older or who have flexible academic practices will go to a rural um, health system on the weekends or a few days of the week, and they will provide care there. They're paid very well by the rural hospitals to go there for a couple of days, a couple of weeks at a time and provide care there, um, but they don't live there. And so they come in there, provide some shift work essentially, and then come back. And that's a solution for some rural programs. But again, um, there's no great solution here, but there are some emerging solutions, which I think are working currently, but still, the average patient is still traveling quite a bit um, and is um, you know, having to go to big major academic centers when they have uh, significant problems. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting thing because if you look forward and you say uh, there's a lot of technology, there's robotics, there's artificial intelligence, that sort of points to centralization um, yeah. because you cannot have distributed you know, high-level technology um, so there's, you know, there's been a lot of talk about sort of uh, medical tourism and things like that. So I wondered if you're heading to a regime where you're going to have few mega um, facilities with all the technologies in the world. Yeah. And, you know, that's able to take in a very large number of patients, provided they can get there. The transportation problem has to be, has to be solved. But from an efficiency perspective, that appears to be not a bad solution. It's not a bad solution. And in fact, in, uh, in Europe, they've adopted the tertiary model very well. So they basically have a bunch of rural um, or community urologists that will diagnose a problem and then refer the patients to the major academic centers for the bigger surgeries. And it works quite well. And in fact, in Europe, they, the training is half the time for the community urologists and longer for the, for the academic urologists. And so, so the trainees make the decision what they want to do. 
and they do that and their training is adjusted accordingly. And, um, you know, salaries, I, I don't know about salaries, but I think the salaries are higher at the academic centers, but so is the cost of living. Um, and the training is longer, um, whereas training is shorter for the more community urologists. Um, the costs are lower, they get paid, you know, a little bit lower, but again, because of cost of living, it, it probably evens out. And that tends to work well kind of in that system. Um, you know, we are the beneficiaries um, in this sort of tertiary model when you're in the academic center. And a lot of academic centers, I'll give you Cleveland Clinic and Mayo Clinic as examples. Uh, what they've done is they have a, a main mothership hospital, if you will, and then they end up buying all of these satellite facilities and they have either community urologists that they've now employed as part of their system or they actually have some of their own urologists that they've sent out there who will see the patients in their local environment and when they have a significant problem then refer the patient to the main hospital for the big treatment. Um, and now there are van services and other transport companies that will transport patients to and from their appointments. So I think that is going to be the model because it's really hard, I think, to get your average urologist to want to take a job um, in a rural environment. Most people want to want to live in a city or, or near a big city. Yeah, I'm thinking even diagnostics for you. So in the community setting, uh, office-based practices, uh, if, if we are sort of moving toward artificial intelligence, um, AI-assisted human diagnostics, yeah. and that information is easily transmissible. You don't necessarily need to go to a community um, uh, practice to do that, right? Right. So, so it almost seems to me that um, it's sort of a binary outcome. Either, either we're going to, going to get people to go practice in the community settings, or we're going to have very high levels of centralization. Um, where do you think we'll end up, you know, if you look forward five, 10 years? I would say it's probably the latter, um, you know, and I, and, I, and I think you're right. I think we might be leveraging technologies like AI where we might put a patient in front, you know, uh, of, a, of a Watson type device where they plug in their symptoms and then you know, certain diagnostic tests are recommended. They get that at a local radiology center. And then a telehealth appointment will be set up with somebody at a tertiary facility. So we are doing a lot of, I mean, the pandemic, the only good thing I could think that's come out of the pandemic is that we as physicians now can legally do telemedicine. And um, I can't tell you, I'm really surprised how many patients I have only met through a vi video visit like we're having now and the next time I see them is when I'm doing their surgery. So they basically, without meeting me in person, shaking my hand, and um, they are willing to just come to me for surgery. And I think that's, that's probably what's gonna happen is that I can reach out to the rural patient provided that they have some local imaging center to get the things I need um, in order to work them up to come in and get their surgery. Um, in fact, in the University of Virginia has a pilot program. So most of Virginia is actually very rural. And um, 
outside of the big cities like Charlottesville and Richmond and, um, and then the area near DC, the rest of Virginia is pretty rural. So um, University of Virginia piloted a program where they taught um, physician assistants who are in the rural areas because they can't even get doctors to go out to the rural areas. None of the doctors want to live there. So they taught physician assistants how to do a procedure called cystoscopy, where we look inside the bladders for patients. And they sent the people out there, the, phys the physician assistants, to go do cystoscopy on patients who had blood in the urine. And then they would record the images and send it over to a urologist. Urologists would train them. And anything that looked abnormal, then those patients were referred for further care to UVA. And in this pilot program, it worked out quite well. The patients had high satisfaction. Um, there was really very few cancers and abnormalities that were missed. And um, physician assistants enjoyed you know, doing the procedures and having the supervision. And the doctors were able to extend their reach without actually traveling to the rural environment. So I think, you know, and that, that was before telemedicine. Um, so now that's actually more of a reality now. In fact, I have trained my own physician assistant how to do cystoscopies and we do them together. But, um, you know, you know, in time, he probably could fund it, uh, function independently of me. And so using these allied healthcare providers, we call them advanced practitioners. Um, you know, sometimes we call them mid-level providers, but I know they don't like that term because that mid-level diminishes kind of their 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 um, importance because they're quite important to the team. But these advanced practitioners who are not physicians can really extend our reach um, into these rural environments. So I think that is also going to be part of this AI revolution, this um, expansion of the tertiary centers with rural satellites. I think this is going to be probably the way we'll practice medicine in the future. Yeah, sort of a hub and spoke system. This is actually yeah. a good model for the developing countries too, I would imagine, if you implement it systematically, right? Right, right, absolutely. I mean, I think um, you just cannot have high-tech equipment and facilities in every corner of a country. And uh, when I think of a, of a place like Mumbai, um, and other places in the world, uh, you know, I, I can only imagine that without the system, you would not be able to provide care, you know, everywhere. Um, you know, other countries, other countries have uh, kind of a public and private system, and that's another issue because you know there's different levels of care there. Um, we usually, I would say, throughout America, you really will get, you know, pretty good care at, at most institutions, and in most of the community hospitals, if they can't do anything complicated, they usually refer them or transfer them to, to bigger hospitals. So, um, but I think this hub and spokes uh, system is, yeah, I think something that definitely could be applied worldwide and would make up for a specialty where there are very few specialists. Right. So, so I want to go into um, one of your specialties, that's uh, prostate cancer. Um, so neurosurgical movement regarding prostate cancer. So this is, uh, prostate is something that older men uh, gets into, right? Not cancer, but uh, sort of an enlarged prostate. 
Um, what is sort of the incidence rate of prostate cancer? Yeah, so prostate cancer is the most common cancer in, um, in men. And, um, you know, it is one of those cancers that is, um, you know, in the, the history of prostate cancer is that it used to be a very difficult, challenging operation and used to have a lot of morbidity um, and, you know, death, uh, blood loss, rectal injuries. And for a while, we as urologists would never do them. Um, then there was a rush of other treatments like radiation therapy, which had its own side effects as well. And then there were refinements in the technique that allowed us to do a more precise uh, surgery. And we were able to do um, a more precise surgical removal of the prostate. We minimized the blood loss, the rectal injuries. Um, we still had to deal with incontinence and erectile dysfunction um, as side effects. And we still deal with them today. Um, but the, our techniques have gotten a little bit better. And now with robotic surgery, now even those people who were gun shy about doing this challenging operation, this has made this, the operation a lot more easy and a lot more easy on the patient as well as easy on the surgeon. Um, the problem with all of this revolution was um, we forgot to ask the question, do we have to operate on everybody? And, um, you know, we now have come forward and answered that question. We realize that we do not need to operate on everyone, that not all cancer of the prostate has to be treated because many of these men will develop cancer while they're older and they will live to die of something else other than the prostate cancer. And a lot of this happened when the U.S. Uh, Preventive Task Force made a recommendation that uh, prostate cancer should not be screened for. And it was a really controversial opinion. And it really, really um, changed the way we as a specialty kind of looked at prostate cancer. And we were on the defensive. We were forced to look at, you know, who do we offer the surgery to? Um, what are the risk factors? Um, in fact, one of my colleagues um, is on a personal mission to redefine early prostate cancer as not being cancer at all. Because in his opinion, when you have this early prostate cancer, um, patients will want to seek treatment, even though the physicians will tell them you don't need it. They can't live with the idea of having cancer. And um, they end up getting a treatment that may not be necessary because they will probably die of something other than prostate cancer. So um, this revolution in prostate cancer surgery and treatment forced us as urologists to reassess ourselves, to realize that we overtreat patients. And now, you know, I think we, are, we have made a lot of changes and now we actively practice something called active surveillance, where if somebody has prostate cancer, we will follow them with biopsies and MRI and their blood tests, the PSA, and very carefully follow them and wait for a trigger point to do surgery or to do radiation. So um, 20 years ago, we were not doing active surveillance. We were not doing, um, you know, robotic surgery. We were just kind of um, 
you know, removing prostates because that's what we knew how to do as urologists. And if you were a man and you had a prostate, well, then you would eventually see a urologist. But I think now you're seeing the urologist, but you're having a very informed discussion about the risks and the benefits of screening. So now if you're above the age of 75, we don't even look for prostate cancer because the assumption is you'll probably have it and that it will probably be a low-grade cancer that you won't die of. And that's sometimes a difficult conversation to have with a patient because a patient, obviously a patient comes in and says, this is America, I want everything done. Um, why are you not checking me for prostate cancer? We have to have this discussion that, you know, there's good data to show that you probably don't have a cancer that is something that you're going to die of. But that strategy can also miss some really aggressive prostate cancers that, albeit rare, can occur. So it's not a perfect approach, but you know we have we have kind of been on one end of the pendulum, and we are now trying to kind of regress to what we think is the optimal mean of the way we should practice. Are the diagnostic techniques improving? So with a biopsy, could you tell if it's an aggressive form or sort of slow, slow developing? Absolutely. I mean, uh, a lot is happening in this area. So um, I used to be at the National Cancer Institute and one of my colleagues, Peter Pinto, um, and among other people in the country, it's not just him, but um, the use of MRI technology has really kind of changed how we do biopsies for prostate cancer. It allows us to, to now image the prostate and find suspicious areas and we can grade those areas at how suspicious they are. And we can target specifically those areas by taking those MRI images and fusing them onto an ultrasound platform to then do biopsies. And um, when I was a resident, you know, we would just have an ultrasound image of the prostate and we would take basically three biopsies laterally on one side of the prostate and then three biopsies medially. And they were kind of at different points in the prostate, but there was no systematic way of really doing it. And there was a lot of variability in operating there. Um, now, we used images of the MRI to do a more precise biopsy. Um, adopting maternity leave, um, adopting um, time off during training and work to help raise the family, um, incorporating resources to allow women to be surgeons and yet have the uh, resources to raise their kids, to have um, schooling nearby, to have childcare. Um, a lot of programs are becoming more and more sensitive to it. So I don't think, I think it's moving in a positive direction. And, and again, along these lines, you know, after the George Floyd incident, a lot of push has been made for diversity and inclusion. So it's not just a problem with women in, you know, holding uh, key academic roles. It's also in uh, people of color and minorities not being able to hold those roles. And so there's been a good push across surgery departments, specifically here at University of Chicago, to be um, have an effort to be more inclusive and to have more diversity um, and to realize that, you know, 
there is other areas of research that are not your typical bench science, translational science, where somebody could develop an expertise and um, become a professor. So um, I think we are becoming a more inclusive uh, discipline, surgery as a whole. And I think in the next 20 years, you're gonna see um, more you know, diverse departments with more women, more minorities, more people in leadership roles uh, than we traditionally have seen in the past. Yeah, it's sort of a chicken and egg problem, right? So if, uh, when you go through the education system, if your expectations are, and I'm talking about thinking about females here, if your expectations are that when you have a family, it's going to interfere with your progression uh, in certain disciplines, you're going to undervalue those disciplines. Right. So, so the, the real question is, where do you start? Uh, because if, if the status quo continues, you're going to get less female participation because they, they can look forward and see what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and so it has to be some sort of a systemic change that, that is going to sort of touch education as well as practice together, right? Right, no, I agree with that. I think you, you, you the specialty has to change, it has to revamp, and you have to reach out to women early during medical school and, and expose them to urology and, and surgical fields and reassure, and they need to see mentors, they need to have role models, so they need to see faculty who are 10 years in the future so that they can see themselves in those faculty members and realize that you can be in that situation within 10 years, you can have a family, you can have a, a meaningful, you know, productive career in academics. Um, that's why there's such a big push to recruit female faculty at all across institutions. I mean, we, we have one female faculty member and I wish we had more uh, but I think in time we are going to have more. And again, urology is um, is going to be the, the last to change because, of course, you know, 50% of what we do is only on men. And so that's why our demographic has been such. But bladder cancer and kidney cancer can affect women as well. And um, all of our other avoiding dysfunction and those things, stones, they can affect women. So large part of what we do as urologists do involve women. Um, but I think, it, you know, we are one of the few specialties that has been really male dominated. And so, but we are already seeing a change. I want to say the statistics show us about 30 to 50% of current urology trainees are women. So, so we are, we are moving in the right direction. And I would say if we do your podcast in 20 years, we're going to, it'll be a lot different. Excellent. Yeah. Let's hope the change continues. Yeah. So, so this has been great, Piers. Thanks so much for spending time with me. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I hope, uh, I hope your subscribers uh, find this uh, educational and, uh, and entertaining at the same time. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.